Pints with Jack, Season 2, Episode 17. The Great Divorce, Chapter 11. The Mother and the Lizard. Friends, welcome to the Pints with Jack weekly podcast, where David and I have the distinct privilege of enjoying a drink together, unpacking the writings of C.S. Lewis, and discovering the truth and beauty of Christianity. We are currently in Season 2, in unlocking the treasures hidden within our favorite C.S. Lewis work, The Great Divorce. My name is Matt, and as always, I am joined by my dear friend David. And as we will see in this chapter with the first ghost to say yes so far in this book to God, I can say with certainty if I say yes to transformation completely, it'll be because of the man on this podcast with me. <laughs> or at least in part. <laughs> Yeah, this this chapter is great because we finally, finally have somebody say yes to heaven. He couldn't leave us without hope. I mean, you read this book and you think to yourself, my goodness, is there any chance any of us are getting there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, for the drinks of the week, it's an early morning episode for David and I because he is just such a good evangelizer doing the book club that he needs to All leave. All right, you need to let off a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> he needs to leave uh, earlier than usual today. So it's 8.30 for him, it's 11.30 for me, so we're not doing alcohol. Speak for yourself. <laughs> no, I, I am having a cup of tea. I was giving a talk last night and I had to prep for book club earlier today, so I'm, I'm needing some caffeine. You say ease off. And yet you just posture with two great evangelization things. I had to lead a talk last <laughs> night. I had to <laughs> You just do it more subtly. There you go. That's the British way. <laughs> I'm just drinking tea as well and I've got a LaCroix to offset the tea when I need. And we need a quote to cheers to. And the quote of the week comes from the solid person, the bright spirit who's called Reginald. And he says, No natural feelings are high or low holy or unholy in themselves. They are all holy when God's hand is on the rain. They all go bad when they set up on their own and make themselves into false gods. That's a great quote. Yeah, I'll cheers to that. Cheers. Cheers. So yesterday I interviewed Justin Thomas, who was a pastor behind The Great Divorce Project. So everybody wants to know, Matt, did you watch the Great Divorce Project video for this week? I did. This is the first one I've watched. What did you think? I really enjoyed it. It does a good job sticking to the script or to the book, to the the essence of what the chapter is trying to communicate. And I actually thought the actors themselves did a really good job. Mm, that's my favorite thing actually about that video, both Reginald and his sister. So what was... Uh... I know we're going to get this in the, whenever you release the interview, but what was the big takeaway? I mean, what was his inspiration for this project? He just loved the book and wanted to do this. I mean, it's a pretty big undertaking. Basically, his congregation, they're in a part of Seattle that really engages with the arts. And so it was a natural thing to move towards. Plus, he loves Lewis. Have they done other stuff related if they're used to the arts? Well, you'll have to listen to the episode and find out. Oh, well played. <laughs> we also had a very funny encounter. I sent it to David. So listeners, you'll remember on a previous episode, I recommended that prayer app, Hallow, which combines 
prayer with meditation. It's like the Christian version of headspace or calm. It's the simplest way to describe it. And my friend, who actually is one of the co-founders of it, sends me a screenshot of his Slack conversation. And in the Slack conversation, the other people had no idea that I was friends with him. And so they go, hey, guys, we just got a great shout out from this Pints with Jack podcast. <laughs> we should reach out to them and, and just say thank you and stuff. And so he's just letting this whole conversation happen and screenshots it to me. And he goes, one, you're famous <laughs> because somehow <laughs> that got back to them. And he goes, two, thanks for the shout out. And so I had to pass that along to David. Really nice. Really nice. And so here's another shout out. If you haven't tried that app, I, I use it almost every single day, uh, trying to make it a routine of daily. It's awesome. Whether you want some of the more Lectio Divina stuff on joy, humility, whether you want uh, an examine of conscience at the end of the day, there's some really incredible practices in there to take you deeper in your spiritual journey. Just one more thing before we get started. Uh, I've just finished reading Unbelievable. It's a uh, book written by the guy who hosts the Unbelievable podcast, where they get Christians and non-Christians together every week to have a pretty substantial debate. And what was brilliant about it? So much Lewis. <laughs> lots and lots of quotes from Lewis, as well as lots of allusions. It's like he's describing something. It's like, I know that chapter from mere Christianity. Wow. So the podcast is each week bringing together Christian and non-Christian. So is the mm-hmm. book a compilation of what they've learned on that or just a, po- a compiling of different journeys? The subtitle is How After 10 Years of Listening to Atheists, I'm Still a Christian. It's, it's something like that. And he basically puts forward his case for why he's a Christian, despite having interacted with all of these famous atheists like Dawkins and Krauss, etc. I'm curious, was there anything that jumped out to you that was new, a new argument that you hadn't heard or beautifully put? Nothing new per se, because, you know, philosophers have been doing this since Aristotle. What I will say is I think he offers a really good synthesis of all of the major arguments that I would use, both for the existence of God and the resurrection, and therefore Christianity. Would you recommend this book, this is going to get you in trouble, instead of Trent Horn's book? Ooh, it's slightly different. Okay. It's, it's, it's more focused on does God exist and did Jesus walk out of his tomb? Okay. If that's your focus, I would say this is probably a better book. Trent Horn's Why We're Catholic is more encompassing. It goes after you answer those, a big part of the book goes well beyond that. Yeah. And also Trent's chapters are shorter. So if you, if you want a book just to dip into for five minutes a day, Trent's, I would say, is better, as well as if you want to go all the way into the Catholic Church. <laughs> uh, if your focus is more about simply the existence of God, the problem of pain, um, the testimony of the New Testament, then I would suggest Unbelievable. It's a very good book. Very good book. Okay. You had that, you took a screenshot of an audio format, right? Yeah. Are you able to share that? Do they ever let you let one other person listen to a book? I don't think it works that way. That's a but it, dude, it's, su- it's super cheap. I, I'm not trying to be cheap here, but you'd think they would. <laughs> think about this for a second. If you buy a book, you can lend it to your friends and stuff and it can move around. It's a bummer they don't give you like three shares. <laughs> Tell you what, I will send you fifteen dollars. You can buy the book yourself. <laughs> Actually, I think it's even cheaper than that at the moment. I think it's something like eight. I'm going to get that though because I have a thirty-minute subway ride every day to work, and that might become uh, what I listen to. Oh, you'll burn through it very quickly then. Okay, I've been listening to Pints with Aquinas a lot so far on that. <laughs> Not to be confused with Pints with Jack. 
One has an English accent and an American accent, and the other one has an Australian accent. Yeah, and one's got two hosts, which just makes it twice as good. Twice as good. Two heads are better than one. Exactly. Double the pleasure, baby. Triple the fun. What's that from? Oh, I'm going to send you a track afterwards. You're going to love me for it. <laughs> well, I was reminded through a text message during our chit-chat session by Jeff. He's the person that I hung out with in New York when he was in town and we went to the Wicked Play. He sent me an email, which was an interview with Douglas Gresham. Oh, this. Yes. Okay. And he's like, you didn't call David out. And I said, you need to equip me to bring this to David. And it was about the <laughs> Narnia ordering being Lewis's opinion. We already knew this, but you said he wrote it to a child. Douglas Gresham like solidified it. No, nah, still wrong. Still wrong. <laughs> so Lewis is wrong. Publication order. It doesn't make sense otherwise. Okay, I'm just going to close the conversation because we've got a lot to get through. Uh, and also, I'm just not discussing this. Because I have, Thank you, Jeff, though, for giving me this equipment. I have made my position very clear, and all right-thinking people agree with me. So, Matt, please give us the summary for this week's chapter. Gladly, with a big smile on my face. Cue the music. A ghost named Pam meets a bright spirit, her brother, Reginald. She had been hoping to see her son, Michael, but Reginald explains that she would appear invisible to him at this point. He says he will be able to see her when you learn to want someone else besides Michael. Pam is annoyed and declares that if God loved me, he'd let me see my boy. Reginald says that her maternal instinct was uncontrolled and fierce and monomaniac. McDonald leads Lewis away and they have a conversation about natural affections. They then meet a ghost with a little red lizard sitting on his shoulder, symbolic of his lust. An angel offers to kill it. After much delay, the man eventually agrees. Not only is he transformed, the lizard becomes a great stallion, which he uses to ride into heaven. Excellent stuff. Well, that was a short summary that covers the main points, but this is quite a long chapter, and it really is packed with so much good stuff. So we're going to have to keep moving because I want to talk about a lot of things. I would try to keep my colored commentary succinct. <laughs> so in this chapter, we meet two different ghosts, a mother who wants to see her son and a ghost with a lizard on his shoulder. And they're two very different kinds of ghosts. So we might wonder why Lewis puts them in the same chapter. And we'll be returning to this question at the end. So first of all, this mother ghost. And this is a really appropriate time to talk about this ghost because at the time recording, we are just before Mother's Day and it'll publish immediately afterwards, at least in the USA. In the UK, we celebrate Mother's Day earlier on the fourth Sunday of Lent. Anyway, Lewis and MacDonald come upon this ghost, Pam, and it's only moments after she's met a solid person, her brother, Reginald. <laughs> What's funny is she's clearly disappointed to see him. She wanted to see her son, Michael. And as Matt outlined in the summary, Reginald assures her that her son is here, that he's up in the mountains, but that at the moment she would be completely invisible to him. Matt, why do you think Michael couldn't see her? I don't know. I mean, I guess the reason I say I don't know, we know in the book, because when you haven't accepted ultimate reality and you haven't been transformed, you're, you have so little substance. Mm -hmm. You're so 
transparent. But I guess I'm curious if there's a deeper theological principle here, or if he's just using that to explain that process of becoming more transparent. Because you would somewhat assume a heavenly creature would still be able to see the outline. So I wasn't sure if Lewis was just using this as an illustration or if there's something deeper here. No, I think that's the basic point, the fact that she isn't substantial enough at the moment. And that's what Reginald says that he's there for. He's there to build her up. And he says that he specializes in this sort of work, building up ghosts. Uh, and the funny thing is that is not the right thing to say because she snaps back at him. Oh, it's work, is it? <laughs> Everyone should think of that one person who would just bug them, the person who seems more spiritual than them, who seems better than them, more righteous than them. Now picture that person meeting you at the beginning of heaven and helping you on your journey up to it. That's what she's going through right now. That, I, I don't know if it's justified, but yes, that's the kind of reaction that she's having. <laughs> I did love, too, with this, the fact that he points out that all she needs to do is thicken up. This wasn't a punishment. Mm-hmm. You're just not quite the person yet. And there's nothing, he doesn't say you need to do X, Y, Z to become it. He says, just submit to the will of God. And learn to love something other than simply your son. Yes. Love God. That's how you thicken up. Yeah. As you say, he says, it's not a question of being allowed. As soon as Michael can see you, he will. And so Pam wants to know what she's got to do to get this thickening to happen. And she asks a very aggressive, how? <laughs> Lewis says, the monosyllable was hard and a little threatening. <laughs> I missed that. Or I forgot it because I read this a week ago, thinking we were doing this last week. You mean you didn't reread it? No. Ah, my plan for <laughs> Reginald says that the first step in this thickening process is a hard one, but once that's happened, things will move quickly. He says you'll become solid enough for Michael to perceive you when you learn to want someone else besides Michael. And he actually qualifies himself. He says it's not that she needs to love somebody more than Michael. Not yet. The, the first of these baby steps is just to simply love someone else besides Michael, as well as Michael. He says, it's only the little germ of a desire for God that we need to start the process. Wow. What a beautiful reminder. A germ of a desire. As we go through this great divorce, it's very easy to think, I'm not living up to this. I don't desire God necessarily more than everything in the world. There's times where I'm weaker than others. But I do believe genuinely there is a germ of pure desire within me. And because of that, I trust and hope in God's goodness and grace and mercy that he is taking that desire and turning it into a house on fire. And speaking of fire, that little description there of a germ, it reminded me of when MacDonald spoke about having a small flame in some ashes. Mm. He says, if that flame's there, we're going to blow on it and it'll turn into this roaring fire. Remember that Lewis says, those who seek, I mean, he's quoting this from scripture, but those who seek will find, those who knock, the door will be open. No one who genuinely seeks heaven will get anything less. Now, Pam takes a couple of jabs at Reginald, but then says that she's ready and asks what she can do to see Michael as soon as possible. And here, Reginald has to reorient her. He says, look, as long as you're only treating God as a means to get Michael, the thickening isn't going to happen. And Pam responds by saying, Actually, interestingly, I think this is the only ghost that's actually named. Anyway, Pam says, you wouldn't talk like that if you were a mother. And Reginald gives a response which might seem really harsh, particularly since we're around Mother's Day. He replies, you mean I wouldn't say that if I was only a mother? 
And that can sound really harsh, but he goes on to qualify it. He says there's no such thing as being only a mother. He says that you exist as Michael's mother only because you first exist as God's creature. And he says that relation, that relationship there, that's older and closer. He says that he also loves, he has also suffered, he has also waited a long time. Oh, what a good image. He loves, he has also suffered, suffered for us to win our love over to him. He has also waited a long time. Seriously, like press pause and ruminate on that. God desires us so much. Mother Teresa writes this I thirst letter. She says, imagine that God is on the cross with his hands nailed, thirsting for our hearts. That is an unbelievable image and one we need to be reminded of more and more. Pam then makes a statement that if God loved me, he'd let me see my boy. And how many times have we said similar things? If God loved me, he would give me X or Y. And then Pam does something that a lot of us do when we're arguing or when we know that we're going to have an encounter. We promise ourselves we're not going to bring something up. And then within five seconds of starting the argument, we bring it up. And the thing that she raises is the fact that God took Michael away. Michael apparently died and she was holding this against God. And Reginald responds in kind of a shocking way. He says that God took him away for two reasons. One, for Michael's own sake, but also for Pam's. And She thinks that this is horrible. She said that they'd been perfectly happy together forever. And he says, no, no, no. Human beings can't make each other happy for very long. And he says that God took Michael away for her sake because he wanted her merely instinctual love for her child. And he actually points out that, you know, animals have this as well. Tigresses share that instinctive maternal love. He said that God took Michael away in the hope that that instinctive maternal love would become something better that she would love Michael in the way that God understands love. And he says that you can't actually even love a fellow creature until you love God. Mm. And he says that what you had for Michael, that instinct was uncontrolled and fierce and monomaniac. The only remedy was to take away the object of her focus in the hope that when that kind of love is thwarted, that in the vacuum that it creates, in the silence, something even better might begin to grow. That's such a difficult concept to grasp when you're going through it, the, the idea that God could take away a loved one. But I don't, I don't know when C.S. Lewis wrote this book in relation to his journey with Sheldon Vanakin. But if you guys want a wonderful book that's an example of this, it's called A Severe Mercy. It's an autobiography of a person and his wife who went on a journey from pagan love to Christian love to love for God. But she died of a terminal illness, and they got to know C.S. Lewis, and they wrote letters. Spoiler warning. Yes, well, (laughs) spoiler warning. The first three pages tell you she dies. So we do know this. Um, And we actually know that there might be a movie coming out about this in a few years. Yes, in the near future. So all that's to say is it's an example where Lewis actually makes this argument to him because she loved God more than him, but he wasn't ready to love God more than her. In fact, he was getting jealous of her love for God. So Lewis says, there's a chance or she would have lived, you would never have come to love God as the ultimate end. And that's why he calls it a severe mercy or one of the reasons. And this isn't to say that when someone you love dies, it's God taking them away so that you get taught a lesson. It's a very good reminder. Yes, this is an imaginative supposal and Lewis can allow heavenly creatures to articulate particular reasons that things happen. 
This side of the veil, we can't say that with any kind of certainty. Pam then articulates her central error. She says, this is all nonsense, cruel and wicked nonsense. What right have you to say things like that about mother love? It is the highest and holiest feeling in human nature. A natural response. A natural response, but it's wrong. And this brings us to the quote of the week. Reginald swiftly corrects her. He says, Pam, Pam, no feelings are high or low, holy or unholy in themselves. They are all holy when God's hand is on the rain. They all go bad when they set up on their own and make themselves into false gods. And this is a paraphrase of the quotation that you mentioned last week from The Four Loves. Lewis reformulates a quotation from uh, Denis de Rougemont. He says, love begins to be a demon the moment he begins to be a god. Wow. That's got to go in the top 10 all-time best quotes. Yeah, I think that one's a really good one. Yeah. And you find that idea expressed multiple times throughout Lewis's works. He says something really similar in Mere Christianity when he talks about the moral law and says that we can't set up one impulse as the one that we must always follow. And he gives the examples of mother love and patriotism. Uh, And there are also other impulses that we can't always quash, like sexual impulse or the fighting instinct. There are times when we have to nurture some of these and other times when we have to contain them. Great connection back to something we haven't talked to in a while. Well, he actually speaks about the danger of mother love very briefly there. And he says one of the dangers is that it can lead to unfairness towards other people's children. (laughs) Very good point. It also can sometimes lead to unfairness within your own children. This is also true. I happen to be the favorite. I know this. (laughs) Uh, and, And it's probably worth underscoring here again. This isn't an attack on motherhood. And... In fact, I would like to dedicate this episode to my mother, who is the best of mothers, on American Mother's Day. I would like to dedicate this to my mother as well. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. So it doesn't matter if you haven't got her a card. You have dedicated a podcast episode to her. And in nine months' time, when she listens to this episode, she will feel very special. <laughs> I don't need to dedicate it. My my bond with my mother goes beyond the public cry on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I should say this, though. I, I'm going to make this plug. Mom, when you do listen to this, I love you, and I expect you to mention that you heard this. And this is how we're going to know how many months it is before she hears it. <laughs> It'll genuinely probably be three or four. See, I, I, don't, I don't place conditions on my love for my mother, but, you know, whatever works for you. It's not conditional. It's just curiosity. (laughs) A different C. Curious where our love stands. (laughs) Now, Pam insists that her love for Michael would have never have gone bad, and that she'd even be happy in hell as long as she could have him. And she actually describes two characters that she met in the Grey Town, Mrs. Guthrie and her son Bobby. And from the way she speaks, it's clear that they're miserable. But she assures Reginald that she would have never been like that. But Reginald says that, no, 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 what you've seen in the Guthries is what happened when natural affection becomes an end in itself, when it doesn't have the opportunity to flower into the fullness of love, which can only be found in God. So if she would have had decades longer with her son, he would not have actually brought the fulfillment she was seeking. Maybe short term. It's like a, a plant that's pulled out of a pot. It can stay a plant for a few weeks, but without being rooted in the soil in the water, it's going to die. It's the same thing. I and mean, if your love isn't rooted in God and you're not finding that fulfillment and you're seeking it in another, it will go south. 
and this has been talking about it from a mother to son relationship, this rings very true to husband, spouse. How often do we seek a partner because we believe they will give us that validation and affirmation that fill that hole, that void that we've been lacking, that we've had? And you know what? They won't. I heard this beautifully illustrated in something that happens between Christopher West and his wife. For those of you who aren't familiar, Christopher West, he teaches the theology of the body. And he was giving a talk making the point that you just made, that human beings can't make each other happy or fully happy, uh, certainly not for very long. And he said, one night at dinner, I looked across at my beautiful wife. I took her hand and I said, honey, you do not fully satisfy me. (laughs) And she knew where he was going with this. So she smiled sweetly, gave his hand a little squeeze and said, sweetheart, neither do you. (laughs) Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is true love. That's the love we put on a pedestal. Yeah, but make sure that your wife, boyfriend, husband, girlfriend understand what you're trying to express. Otherwise, it's going to go bad very, very quickly. Anyway, Pam insists that she couldn't have possibly loved Michael anymore and that she'd even only lived for his memory since his death. And Reginald says that this was a mistake. He describes it as 10 years ritual of grief. And he says it was the wrong way to deal with the sorrow. He says it's Egyptian, like embalming a dead body. It, of course, stands in stark contrast to the Christian resurrection, because that's the idea that's behind all of this, that things have to die in order to be resurrected. And Reginald then goes on and speaks a little bit about the way that this mother treated the death of her son, the impact it had on the rest of her family. He says that as a result, she pushed away and ignored her daughter Muriel and her husband Dick. And it was alluded to earlier, but Reginald then goes on to explain how this mother, she pushed away and ignored her daughter Muriel and her husband Dick as a result of her monomaniac focus on her son. And she throws a bit of a hissy fit to this and says, of course I'm wrong. Everything I say is wrong according to you. This is what's so powerful. That's where the spirit goes, yes, that's exactly right. But that's more or less the key of this book. He says, that's what we all find when we reach this country. We've all been wrong. That's the great joke. There's no need to go on pretending one was right. After that, we begin living. Now, this is all just too much for Pam, and she just starts making demands. She says, no one has the right to come between me and my son, not even God. Tell him that to his face. I want my boy, and I mean to have him. He's mine, do you understand? Mine, 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 forever and ever. That word, mine. Mm-hmm. I don't know, where, where are you guys in the screw tape letters? Uh, we're just about to finish chapter 18. There's a quote in here exactly about this, but it says, The sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and hell, and we must keep them doing so. Remember, that's Satan talking, or a a demon, I should say, talking. The word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father or the enemy will say mine, of each thing that exists, and specifically of each man. Yeah, we're kind of funny about what we regard as ours. Pretty much everything we have is gift. (laughs) Our time, our money, our talents. But what's funny is that God does actually want to give us everything. All that is good, that's what he wants to give us. That's what good fathers want to give. Note, I'm not saying a prosperity gospel here. (laughs) But Reginald says, Michael will be yours. 
everything will be yours. God himself will be yours, but not in that way. Because he says, nothing can be yours by nature. And she goes, what? Not even my own son born out of my own body? And I think this is just a wonderful scene. And he says, and where is your own body now? Because <laughs> remember, she's this disembodied ghost. I, I just imagine her blushing and realizing that she looks rather silly at this point. And if that wasn't enough, what does he say next? Well, <laughs> uh, if this was the Jerry Springer show, the crowd would be going wild. Because Reginald then says, how is he yours? He says, you didn't make him. Nature made him grow in your body without your will even against your will. And then he points out that she actually had never intended to get pregnant. <laughs> Michael was an accident. Oh. And then she says, how dare you? <laughs> but this, this actually is slightly terrifying. This is the idea that there will be no secrets in heaven. Yes. Oh, that scares me. I really hope there's no <laughs> highlight reel of all my worst stuff or something like that. Well, at least, at least you'll know that those people who are there won't hold a grudge. And they'll be the most charitable that any people could possibly be. Oh, that's a good point. I really hope people don't see the running monologue in my head. That would be the great joke. We should write a book called The Great Joke. (laughs) Whenever I speak to anybody that tries to tell me that they're actually a good person, uh, that they don't need God, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm no Hitler kind of thing. Uh, I ask them, how would you feel if every thought and picture that went through your head was broadcasted just above your head for people to see. I'd be incredibly embarrassed. Yeah, and I think most people would. Oh my goodness, actually. I'm picturing that right now. Anger, lust, pride, jealousy, envy. You look at one person here, some thoughts. There's judgment on this person. There's, I mean, holy cow. I just like to think that mine would be like a a reel of the best scotches to drink. (laughs) Just... Shows people what I'm thinking about. Now, right before MacDonald takes Lewis away, Reginald points out that Pam is actually deficient in love. She has no love for Reginald or even her own mother. And she responds by saying, oh, so, so you're jealous and you're hurt. And Reginald responds by saying, oh, no, 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 no. You, you can't hurt anybody in this country. And Lewis's comment is wonderful. He says, the ghost was silent and open mouthed for a moment. More wilted, I thought, by this reassurance than by anything else that had been said. Her inability to hurt somebody was actually a sadness for her. It's because you want to know you have control over people. Yeah, it speaks to the quality of her love or lack of quality. I've been in conversations with individuals in the world where people constantly cut them down. And I said, you know why? They want to know they have control over you. That's why, because they feel small. And if you get hurt by their words... It actually makes them feel bigger. It makes them feel powerful. It's a really important thing to remember. As MacDonald takes Lewis away, Jack actually asks MacDonald if there's any hope for this ghost. And MacDonald says, yeah, yeah, there's some. He says, what she calls her love for her son has turned into a poor, prickly, astringent sort of thing. But there's still a wee spark of something that's not just herself in it. That might be blown into a flame. Again, this is coming back to the idea that if there's that tiny little spark, that heaven can blow on it and turn it into a fire. A mustard seed. Mm-hmm. And, and Lewis asks then if, if some natural feelings, some natural loves are a better starting point for the, for the real thing, the ultimate thing. And MacDonald then unpacks what we saw in Mere Christianity and really what has been spelled out over the course of the last couple of chapters, that 
some kinds of love can lead to that eternal love more easily. But the danger is that they can be more easily mistaken for the heavenly. He says that you don't mistake clay for gold, but you might mistake brass for gold. He says that if something is a stronger angel, when it falls, it becomes a fiercer devil. So that the higher something can be, the worse it can become. For listeners, this is a reminder to that fleshly sin versus spirit sin. Here he's talking about affections versus appetites. And this whole idea in the book makes Lewis kind of nervous. He says, you know, should I really be going to a grieving mother and telling her all of this, that there's a higher love greater than the one that is causing her all this pain? And MacDonald tells him something that I think a lot of us Christians need to hear. He says, no, no, son, that's no office of yours. You're not a good enough man for that. When your own heart's been broken, it will be time for you to think of talking. But he then does go on and say, but someone has to say in general what we humans keep forgetting, that every natural love will rise again and live forever in this country, but none will rise again until it has been buried. Until these other loves will submit to the greater love, they won't be raised themselves. And Lewis quotes Keats, who spoke about he knew about the goodness of his natural affections. And MacDonald replies that everything is good when it looks to God, and everything is bad when it turns from him. And then he reiterates the idea that we've seen several times now, that the higher and the mightier something is in the natural order, the more demonic it will be when it rebels. He says it's not out of bad mice or fleas that you get demons, but out of bad archangels. He says that the false religion of lust, that's baser than the false religion of mother love or patriotism or art. But lust is less likely to be made into a religion. So speaking about the inadequacies of lust, we actually now turn to another ghost with a lizard on his shoulder. Lewis and MacDonald, they see this dark, oily-looking ghost with a red lizard on his shoulder, who's whispering in his ear. And we'll find out later that this lizard is symbolic of the man's lust. The ghost tells the lizard to shut up, but he continues to whisper, and presently the ghost begins to smile and start to move away from the mountains. Rather than going further up and further in, he's going further down and further out. He's heading back to the grey town. But the ghost meets an angel who asks him if he's leaving so soon. And the ghost explains that the lizard had promised to be quiet, and he's not behaving, so they're going home. And the angel asks him if he would like him to make the lizard quiet. And the ghost says he would. So the angel moves forward to kill the lizard. And this shocks the ghost. He says, oh, no, I didn't mean that at all. I hardly meant to bother you with it. So English, it's untrue. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's this rather amusing exchange where the ghost keeps procrastinating. He says, oh, I'm quite open to consider it, but... It's a point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking of silencing it, because up here, well, it's so damned embarrassing. There's time to discuss it later. Please, I never meant to be a nuisance. Please, don't, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep now of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right. Thanks ever so much. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process should be far better than killing it. I'll think over what you said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now. But as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be silly to do it now. Perhaps I think I should be in good health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps. (laughs) These are all the excuses we make when we don't want to kill a sin in our life. One beautiful part about this exchange is the how evident it is that God can't force this ever. 
His grace will transform it if we freely submit it. But we have to freely submit it and it will be painful. He says, it won't kill you, but it will hurt you. That's because we're so attached to these desires. They've become a part of us. We heard in a previous one where you, you get to the point where you know they won't give you the satisfaction, but you just can't let go of them. They're so much a part of our identity. We think they will give us this pleasure that they won't. And we actually hear what the lizard starts to say towards the end as the lizard realizes that it's in serious danger. He spreads so many lies at this point right now. These are incredible lies. Well, he does also give some aspects of truth. He says that this angel can do what it says. It can kill me. And it promises to be better. You know, isn't that sin? Isn't that what it always <laughs> does? It promises something it never delivers. This is basically sin pleading for its life. And then it says, you won't be a man anymore. Mm-hmm. This is obviously very specific to this sin. But as a man, our world tells us this all the time. If you're someone who decides to surrender lust to God and to strive for chastity, our world says, oh, so you're not good in bed. Oh, you're not a man. Oh, you haven't had any of these conquests. Oh, you haven't. Like It tells you that that makes you less manly. You're inexperienced. You don't know what you're doing. Like That's exactly what's being pointed out here. And as we will see, it couldn't be further from the truth. That's a boy speaking there. And the ghost eventually overcomes his fear. And so the angel's hands close around the lizard and the ghost screams. And then something amazing happens. The lizard is transformed into a great silvery white stallion with a mane and tail of gold. And the ghost is transformed into a huge solid man. The man and the horse embrace. The man flings himself at the feet of the angel. And then he jumps on the stallion and they race towards the mountain. The very land itself begins to sing. And the words that it sings is a paraphrase of Psalm 110. Mm. And so after this has all happened, MacDonald and Jack discuss what they've seen. Because he's troubled for the fact that it seemed like the mother was further away from heaven. Yet this man's lust proved less of an obstacle than this mother's excess of love. And MacDonald just jumps on this. He says, excess of love? There was defect. She loved her son too little, not too much. He said if she'd loved him, there'd be no difficulty. He says it may well be that at this moment, she's demanding to have him down with her in hell. And he says that kind, they're sometimes ready to plunge the soul of the person they say they love into endless misery if it only means that they can in some fashion possess it. Think of examples where we see this actually, let's get out of spiritual ones. They've shown in friendships. You see a friend of yours that's starting to achieve success and starting to really become ambitious and climb the ladder, let's say, in a worldly sense. They've shown psychologically friends who aren't doing that can start to get jealous, try to hold them back out of a fear that they're going to lose their friend. The friend's going to start finding new friends or new things that are better than them. This happens all the time. So think in your own life if you see a friend who's starting to find new interests or starting to get ambitious in a different way or starting to are further along in a Christian journey than you and you think to yourself, oh, I might be losing them. Be careful where your desire goes there. Because that's a defect of love, not an excess. Yes. Because if you truly love them, you would want what is best for them. Yes. And then they have the conversation about the lizard and the lust. And as we mentioned earlier, the lizard was trying to claim you're going to be less of a man. But what we see is that couldn't have been further from the truth. The transformation turned him into an incredible man. He was a boy. And here's why. It says, 
Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. For all men listening to this, and women, holy cow. Emma Donald asks the question, if this is what lust can look like after it's converted, what would maternal love or friendship look like when the same thing happened to them? Wow. Be something even greater. This is so much in relation to St. Augustine's disordered loves. What we're seeing here is a reordering of love. Sin is love for the wrong thing to the wrong end. It's disordered. When we recognize that this transformation is that process of reordering it back to God-centered. And amazing things happen when we do that. And in this chapter, we actually hear about two different kinds of loves that Lewis talks about in The Four Loves. Affection, storge, and erotic love, eros. But as he points out in the book, these need to be ordered by agape, divine love. When those loves are turned in on themselves, what was that phrase, Matt? Incumbatus in se. Very good. Never going to forget <laughs> that now. When they're turned in on themselves, they, they, they become demons. Natural loves need agape. They need to be governed by a higher love. One thing I found kind of amusing was, what was the name of this woman's son? Michael. Do you know what Michael means? I'm thinking of the Archangel Michael. Mm-hmm. And he's named for Michael, who is like God. And it's in response to Satan's challenge of God. It's when Satan tried to set himself up over and above God. Michael is actually the one who shows him who is like God. Nobody is like God. Wow. He is higher and greater. And it's not to say that any of these loves are bad. Think back to mere Christianity when Lewis was talking about the moral law and he speaks about the instincts are the keys on a piano and the moral law is the sheet music. It's not that there are right notes and wrong notes. They just need to be right in relation to one another. There's an additional point I want to make for the listeners. If you pay attention to the themes of all the chapters before this and the different ghosts, so much of it was about parts of the soul that needed to be transformed. For the first time, we get an example with lust and a lizard of a very physical, like the body transformation. And we see in scripture, it says in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty four, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. We see throughout Paul that the natural body will also be raised, but it'll look different. This is a perfect example of that. The boy was a ghost and became a man. There was a transformation of his body when the physical lust was killed and turned into something new. It's not as if the physical lust was just gone. It was the desire was transformed into something better. And this reminds me so much that we talk about of deification, divinization, theosis, the concept of going from the bios to the zoe. That we have from our parents, our bios, our natural life, but what we really need is the zoe, the supernatural life. Yes. And part of the process of receiving that, of being transformed, is allowing some of those natural parts of us to die, but in order that they would be raised again. Let's end with that. All right. So I've got a couple of haikus. I had to write these rather quickly, so they're not my best. I will try and write some more and post them on Twitter later this week. But I wrote two for the mother. The highest of loves, and by far the holiest, is great mother love. 
My son is my world. I love him far more than God. My life's great focus. And I purposely put a little bit of ambiguity there when she says, I love him far more than God. Because she's claiming that she loves her son better than God loves him. And she also loves her son more than she loves God. Well played. Wouldn't have caught that. I also did one for the lizard man. Lust was a lizard, but an angel set me free. It became my steed. Ooh, that's a really good one. (laughs) And also feel free to contact us if you have any other comments uh, about this episode or what we're going to be doing next. You can always find us on Twitter and Instagram at Pints with Jack. And remember, we need more iTunes reviews. This is so helpful. You guys are spreading the kingdom whenever you give it a five-star rating. You are spreading hell when you give a one-star rating. So whatever you do, be sure to set a five-star rating. Mm-hmm. And join us next week when we're going to be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>